0: Welcome to Jamming with Jason Mefford, a show where we discuss topics relevant to chief audit executives and professionals in audit risk and compliance. We discuss the technical and soft skills needed to navigate the minefields of organizations. You hear best practices and practical advice for helping you advance your career, and we'll even talk about music, mindfulness, and psychology because we can. So sit back and relax while you listen to the number one podcast in the world for internal auditors, unscripted and unedited. Well, welcome, everybody. I am excited to have my friend Brian Ahern back on with me. Um, you know, Brian, we, we talked a little while ago and um, kind of heard through the grapevine that you were working on a new book. And so I wanted to make sure and have you back on here Ah, uh, to talk more about influence. So, um, uh, welcome back, Brian. <laughs>
1: Thanks, I, I, Jason. I really appreciate it. I had fun laughing. We've already had fun chatting a little before this, and so I'm excited to be here again.
0: I know it's like we should probably record half of the intro stuff before we actually hit record and let people actually hear because <laughs> we actually have great discussions even before we actually start talking.
2: Yeah, lots uh, of laughs. <laughs>
0: But I think it's, you know, your 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 book is, you know, Influence People mm-hmm. and and people is an acronym, right? I mean it's it means we're obviously we're influencing people, but right. you have an acronym that goes behind or that that lines up with people. So maybe start off and just explain to to people what the people acronym stands yeah. for. Because I think it's important in, in our discussion that we're gonna have today.
1: Sure. Well, so the book, the book title is Influence People with the subtitle, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical. And so if people aren't thinking every one of those words, P-E-O, it spells people. And I don't know, it just, it hit me a long time ago, this acronym about people that it is, influence is all about those powerful everyday opportunities we have to persuade people that are lasting and ethical. So I'll talk just briefly about each. You know, when I talk about why it's powerful, it's because it's based on science. Everything is rooted in social psychology, behavioral economics, neuroscience. Um, So it's powerful. People can take it to them, use it. It's going to make a difference for them. Um, It's an everyday skill because sometimes I say womb to tomb. I mean, you you come out as a baby, you're crying, (laughs) you need your needs met. Do
0: you mean we have to deal with people every day in our lives?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There are very few people who uh, go off and and (laughs) live by themselves. Yeah. Um, So every day we're trying to get people to do things for us, and and that's part of the whole persuasion process. So it's a 24-7, 365 skill. It's an everyday skill. What most people don't realize is how many opportunities are out there to ethically move people to action, but they don't see them – Because they don't understand the language of influence. And so they're not like looking and spotting it. And the best example that I can think of, which I use in the book is when you buy a new car, you go out and you start driving your car. And in the days and weeks after you bought your new car, it seems like you see it everywhere. And it wasn't that everybody went out and bought your car. Your focus changed because of something in your life. And, and I think when your focus changes and you begin to understand about persuasion and the principles, you just start seeing them everywhere. So there are these opportunities that are out there right now just waiting for people to tap into.
0: Well, it's interesting because that's actually rooted in science as well. right? Sure. Because they, they've done it because it is. It, it's what we, what we focus on, what we concentrate on is what we see. And so that car example, I've heard that a ton of times, right? It's like, if you decide I want this new car, then all of a sudden you see it everywhere that you've never noticed it before. And so again, the more we talk about influence, the more we talk about these opportunities, you're going to see them everywhere, right? Which is going to give you more opportunities to influence people, which is going to make you a bigger influencer. Um, So, yeah. So,
1: So if somebody wants to be successful in their career, a large part of it is getting other people on board and getting them to say yes. The best way to do that, it's by persuading people. Then the best way to persuade people is going to be understand what what underlies that. What is it that causes people to say yes? And once that happens, that's where your eyes just, you're like, wow, I, I understand now how that marketer or sales or politician are trying to get me to do things. But oh, by the way, now I can also utilize that in an ethical way to move people to action.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so we have these powerful everyday opportunities and then we define what does it mean to persuade and when I ask people that quite often I'll hear to convince somebody or to change somebody's thinking and that's a good start but it's not enough because uh, if I asked you you know when you tell your child clean the, clean your room you don't want them to look at you and say hey dad that's a good idea You <laughs> want them to you, do something right yeah you want to okay take that good idea and put it into action you want them to to do something you want them to change their behavior and so I think persuasion is really it comes down to changing behavior, getting someone to say yes and to actually do something. And the best definition that I've heard to date is from Aristotle, where he said it was that persuasion is the art of getting someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. So, well,
0: and I think commitment. it's interesting because it's the ask, right? Because because yes. I think it's you know sometimes the word persuade people. I like the definition that you did, but a lot of times people in their mind like automatically switch persuade with manipulate. Yep. And then then they think about sales and they think about people trying to get you to do something you don't want. And, and what's interesting is the best salespeople don't try to make the sale. They ask you or provide you with an offer, but they're not trying to manipulate you. Right. They're, they're just trying to be persuasive in if you, need the, if you need a new car, <laughs> right, here's why this one you know, would be a good deal and here's an offer for it. Take it or leave it kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah, a good, a good salesperson I think helps people uh, fulfill whatever their wants are mm-hmm. and their needs. Now, I will say sometimes people don't see their needs. I, I came out of the insurance industry. Um, there's a lot of people who should buy life insurance. They don't think they need it. We all think that we're gonna live forever. <laughs> Um, but but everybody really needs that if they want some financial protection for their loved ones. So in that case, you do as a persuader have to help somebody see that they have a need, but it, it should never be pushing something that someone doesn't want or doesn't need just so you can make a sale. And we'll yeah. talk about that when we talk, when we get to the E for ethical, but um, for now, let's we'll focus on yeah. persuasion is, is that it, it comes down to the ask, how do I interact with somebody and what are the psychological principles that would make it, for that person to say yes to me Mm -hmm. and then the L is lasting if you do it the right way it can have a lasting impact because sometimes when you um, maybe if a salesperson makes a sale and somebody loves let's say it's a car they they love their car they become a a committed buyer because they want that brand right it it, they see themselves as as that kind of person It, it touches their core it has a lasting impact for me a personal example was when I was much younger, I was a competitive powerlifter and a bodybuilder. And then when I stopped competing, uh, a friend persuaded a number of us that we could run the Columbus Marathon. I really didn't want to do it, but I ended up doing it and something amazing happened. I fell in love with running. And so all of a sudden, I'm getting in 5Ks, 10Ks. I ended up running half a dozen marathons but the interesting thing was my self identity changed. I saw myself as a runner and I naturally did what runners do. And now I am far more committed to running than I am lifting as much as I've loved the competition of powerlifting and bodybuilding. If I only have a limited time, I go out and run because that's how I see myself. So it had a lasting impact. Mm. And then the, the, the last letter is E for ethical. And so we can go back to your comment on manipulation that, uh, I always say there's two things that are absolutely a must to be ethical. We First of all, we, we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. You know, uh, It's not enough if you're going to sell your home to talk about truthfully all the good features if in the back of your mind you're hoping they don't ask about <laughs> a crack in the basement. Yeah. Right? Um, truthful people, honest people, ethical persuaders will talk about the fact that there's a crack in the basement. And they also learn through... Their understanding of persuasion—that there's way, there are ways to do that that actually gain you trust and credibility, and might have, actually make the sale come easier. So, you, so we never, we always tell the truth and we don't hide the truth, and we're always looking for win-win. It's not enough for me to get what I want, Jason. You need to get what you want or need too. And if both of us can do that, and I've been truthful, I can feel comfortable that I'm being ethical in my attempt to change your behavior.
0: Well, and I think I, I think these all kind of tie together too, because you know I, I know I knew the E was ethical, and so I was kind of kind of letting you you know talk about that. But to me, the lasting ties in with the ethical too, right? Because again, we've got to think about the decisions and and the way we're trying to persuade people it should be for the long term, the long Absolutely. game, you know, sort of thing, right? And so, if we're trying to you know persuade people, but maybe just for a short term gain on our part, then we kind of switch over into that almost manipulative side right. versus if we're actually trying to do it in an ethical way, then there's going to be more lasting things there. And like you said, actually being honest about things like the crack in the basement, but learning how to talk about the crack in the basement, mm-hmm. you know, from a, from a using the right words, because again, it's like, Hey, you know, here's the reality might be something like this, right? I've lived in the house for 15 years. There was a crack in the basement when I bought it and it hasn't changed in 15 years. Right. Um, you know, and so even though there is a crack in the basement, it's, it's, it may not be something that they need to be concerned with, um, as well, but you have to kind of explain that and be open and honest
1: about it. And I think when you do that, then somebody thinks, well, if he's going to be that upfront about that, he's probably being truthful about everything else too. And, and you are, as an ethical influencer, you are being honest about that. But but all of a sudden, putting that on the table gains your credibility. If you didn't mention it, and then towards the very end of the tour of the house, they note it and they ask about it, then you're, you're seen as you're trying to hide it. So, So we're truthful in what we say, and we're also truthful about other things knowing that people, cause I'd want to know, and you'd want to know if there was a crack in the basement, if you were going to buy that house. So then we need to let other people know that too.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because as you say that, I remember an old car that I had many years ago, a Saab 900. Loved that car. Loved the, loved the lines of it and everything. But it was, um, my dad's joke was, you know, I bought, I bought the car cause it was used. And after I bought my Saab, I was sobbing thereafter. <laughs> right. Because of all, of all of the, uh, uh, repairs and other love that I needed to put into that car. And, um, you know, but finally it got to a point, I mean, it had lots of miles on it and it it blew, um, what, one of the pistons blew, I think it was a crank, something anyway, happened on it. And, um, so I, I advertised it and the guy came over and, uh, and opened the door, you know, he's like, you know, let's go look at it, you know, kind of thing. He's like, okay, just be, completely honest with me. I'm a mechanic. I know what this is. Just what's what's wrong with it? Why are you selling it? So I tell him, he's like, okay, no big deal. All right, here you go. Poof, wrote the check and walked away. You know, it was like, but if but if I had tried to hide something like that and then he found out afterwards, he would have been pissed, right? Yeah. Um and so he <laughs> can't like it triggered that story in me that, you know, when we're honest it makes it easier too, right? Because he didn't even try to negotiate the price or anything else. I'd I'd set it where I thought it was fair, knowing that somebody was going to have to put money into it, mm-hmm. and he could see that as well. Yep. Um, I didn't even realize that I was doing it right. <laughs> you know, that was twenty five years ago. But um, it, it, it's interesting that yeah, we we shouldn't we should always be ethical. We shouldn't be worried about um, telling the truth, but obviously. There's certain ways that we can tell the truth that's easier for other people to understand and accept.
1: Absolutely. And and always watching. I mean, so you know, if you had been untruthful with that guy, who knows who he would have told and how that might come back around. And now today with social media, even more so. So we have to conduct ourselves. And and I will say this on the positive side that when we conduct ourselves well, you also don't know who's watching, but it may come back in a in a beneficial way, because I was on a call today. And uh, somebody that I had known through work who moved on years ago to a different company made a comment about something that I had done on Facebook for a friend who, was, who had cancer. Uh, I didn't even know that he had paid attention to that. But what I do know now, Jason, is he sees me totally different. He sees a moral foundation for a guy. And that, w- that will make it easier if he says, we want to do business with you because people want to do business with, with ethical, reputable people.
0: Well, and I think it's important because actually, you know, before we started talking, we were actually talking about football uh, because I'm an LA Rams fan and going to the the training camp. And I know I told you, you know, about an experience that I had of watching some of the players and how they interacted with the fans totally gave me like a different view of some of the players. And so, you know, two years ago, my favorite player on the team was this guy who actually you know he did he went above and beyond what he needed to do in in hanging out with the fans, being the last to go in the locker room, all that kind of stuff so that that was a good thing that like elevated my respect level for him now if you flip because it goes both ways right so if you flip it, one of the people that I know a uh, very very um, well known person in their their particular field mm-hmm. and most people look up to them think that the, this person is just you know, a God, if you will, in the industry. Um, And I used to think that too, right? Until I happened to be in an airport and notice how this person actually interacted with the airline staff (laughs) and it wasn't good. Right. And so again, it's like he had no idea that I was watching or anybody else was watching. But yeah, for the last 20 years, I viewed that person in a completely different light than other people have, because, you know, really to be ethical or integrity, I mean, the word integrity means whole, right? Is that we show up and are the way that we are all the time. And so people can see that.
2: Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's an important, important facet. And again, that we have to do here because, you know, if people feel like we're trying to manipulate them, instead of coming to it from a place of authenticity, from a place of, of kind of an ethical base and just trying to help them change their behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cause again, I like, I like that aspect behind persuading. Um, then, then it's going to show up for us wrong. So, well, um, you know, for, for, I know some people may have, may have heard or heard you talk before. Cause last time that we talked, we talked about influence,
2: mm-hmm. we
0: talked about the six principles of influence, but I know in the book, cause I got a Books, books coming out. We're going to be teasing this probably throughout, right? That, um, this new book, you've actually added a seventh one into the book too. So what I thought might be helpful is just to kind of run through those six. And again, you know, before we've talked about what those six are in a little bit more detail, but maybe just kind of give a high level view in case somebody is, is, you know, hearing this for the first time. And then let's talk a little bit more about that seventh one. Because I think that really ties into some of the discussion we've just had.
1: Okay, great. And I, I'll introduce one and and then I'll pause because you may have questions and I can get on a roll and get excited. And just okay, <laughs> sounds good. Um, um, so our, the first principle that we typically talk about is principle of reciprocity. And and that's simply that, that feeling that we all get to g- want to give back to someone who's first given to us. And an ethical persuader understands that that's how people – typically think and feel and behave and so they look for opportunities to engage that principle. Now I'm not a I'm not an advocate of give to get. I am not gonna just help you, Jason, so I can get something from you. I'm gonna help you because I do believe it's the right way to live life, but I also trust the fact that if I help enough other people, those people will be willing to help me if and when I need help. And I can feel comfortable then going back to those people. To me that's how it works, not the person who comes up and you're like, oh what do you want? Okay, yeah. I know you There are strings here. No, we don't do it with strings attached, but we also feel comfortable that we can go back to the people that we've helped.
0: Yeah. Well, and and because I think with that, you know, sometimes when people hear the word reciprocity, they think uh, direct reciprocity, tit for tat, quid pro quo, right? I do this for you, I expect you to do something back. And that is not what it's talking about. It's more that theory of general reciprocity, paying it forward you know and and i think this is the hardest thing for a lot of people to realize you have to usually be the one that goes first yep you have to do it you have to do it from the right place and without attachment or without expectation of anything coming back to you and when you do that then you're really kind of following that principle of reciprocity
1: absolutely and and it can get a bad rap out there where people can like you're saying they can look at it as tit for tat or i'm only helping no, that's, and, and, and this is where it gets nuanced. And this is where it's important that when you talk with somebody who really studies it, like I do, that you can get to that deeper level. Because I've had people go through workshop and they leave and they go, wow, that was pretty Zen. I don't know anything about Buddhism or what, but, but <laughs> what it did was, I guess it resonated at a deep level. Like, hmm, I've never thought of it that way before. Maybe if I live my life that way, good things will come about. Yeah. So that's the first principle we talk about. The, the next one that we spend time on is liking. And, and everybody will get this. We prefer to do business with people that we like, right? It's easier for us to say yes to those we know and like. But here, again, we don't try to get people to just like us. Um, if you like me, certainly you'll, do, you'll be more likely to say yes to me. But the real thing, I want to come to like you, Jason, because I want to look forward to my interactions with you and everything. And when you sense that Brian really likes you, that's where everything changes. Yeah. Because we naturally assume that our friends do right by friends. So we don't try to get people to like us. We think, I want to come to like that person. How do I do that? And that's some of what the book explains.
0: Well, and I think what's interesting too is that it's, it's and this is kind of an irony too, almost like the reciprocity, is you, you know, you said sometimes people take liking to mean I need to have someone else like me. I need to be a likable person. I need to do things to make people like me. You know, you see this on social media all the time and in in offline stuff as well. But the reality is this is where kind of that authenticity and ethics has to come in too, is it's like, yes, I want to get to know you. I want to get to like you. I want to find things about you that I like, right? Mm-hmm. And we've talked enough about this before, you know, on stuff before we like some of the same TV shows. We both like scotch. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, we actually, I found out today we both like to run Mm-hmm. as well. So I've, I need to get back into that a little bit more, but um, you know, so there's things about you that I like, mm-hmm. but I have to be authentically me and I need to be open enough so that you can learn about me yep. to be able to like me. Right. And so, so it it does, it kind of goes both ways and that instead of trying to have people like you, you just need to be yourself and try to like other people. And then if they see you for who you are and they happen to like that, then they will like you back. I mean, is that kind of a fair way of?
1: Yeah. And, and you're engaging a little reciprocity too, because you're being the first to go. So mm-hmm. by, by putting out things not in the, oh, you know, like me, but but knowing that other people may not be as upfront, you can put those out there and then all of a sudden, like you did, like, Hey, I like running too. And I like scotch too. And, and all of a sudden we're, we're bonding.
0: Yep. Yeah. Cause, cause, cause that's what I try to say, you know, especially from the audit mm-hmm. from auditors who are a lot of my, uh, you know, audience is we, we, we talk about things like rapport building when you're going in to do an interview. And mm-hmm. so I've talked about some of that stuff and there's different ways to do it. But one of those is to try to find something that's interesting about the other person. Mm-hmm. Or something that you know is important to the other person and ask them questions about it, um, it could be things in their desk or pictures or other different things, but try to find something because everyone in the world you can find something in common with them that you both like if you want to
1: absolutely and and I think that you know when when your motivation is is not to get them to like you because you can, you can do the very same things, but that motivation is what comes through. And that times people feel like, Oh, this is like interacting with a salesman who will say or do anything to get me to like him versus somebody who they say, wow, they're so genuine. I really like that person because they also seem to really like me. So it's what comes from the heart matters.
0: No, it does. It does. All right. So that's reciprocity and liking.
1: Next one. Well, the next one we can talk about is authority. So um, people will naturally say yes. It's easier to say yes to people that they view as experts, people who have more wisdom or superior knowledge in something. And I mean, we all get this too. That's why many people listening to this probably use an accountant to prepare their taxes if they have a question uh, about something legal, they turn to somebody who's got a law degree. Yeah. Well, we feel better um, getting a diagnosis from a doctor than just going online and looking up something. So there, there is something about when we come across somebody that we view as extremely wise or an expert, it makes it easier for, for us to say yes to them. So that's that's really the root of authority. And the challenge of, of um, could be an auditor, me, you, anybody else is, can I get expertise out there. So people have a reason to listen to what I'm saying. If they don't know that I'm an expert and they find out after I've already given the presentation or given some advice, it doesn't do me a whole lot of good at that point. So it's about thoughtfully making sure those people can see what your expertise is. Then they begin to listen to you more.
0: Well, and I, and I think too, because it's, you know, like you said, yeah, if we, if we need our taxes done, we're probably going to go find an accountant. If we, you know, have a legal question, we're going to go find a lawyer. But you know, even though the person has the degree or the the license or whatever it might be, right, you're still interacting with them and you start to ask them some questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I know I'll do I'll do this with people that I'm kind of vetting, you know, like if I'm trying to find a new provider for something. I will look at their credentials or their background or things like that, but then I'll start asking them some questions to see if they actually really know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's where I think is, I I heard you use the word wise, right? Is that, and and I think sometimes we think, well, I, you know, I graduated from Harvard. I have this degree. I have, you know, this certain certification that by itself doesn't make you an authority. (laughs) You actually have to put, right, put something behind it and actually know what it is that you're talking about and be able to be wise so that people can understand what you're talking about and value That you do actually know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I always look at wisdom as the application of knowledge. You can can know a lot about a lot of things, but can you translate that into things that improve your life or improve your business or improve the lives of others? That's where wisdom comes in.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: Um, The next principle that we talk about is called consensus or also known as social proof. And for those people who've raised teenagers, peer pressure. And it is simply the fact that Human beings are social, a social species, and when we come across what other people are doing, how they're feeling, thinking, behaving, that tends to impact how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. And whether it's lots of people who are doing something, or if we see a subset of people who are very similar to ourselves, it, it has a big impact on how we think, feel, and behave. So understanding that, you know, people who are ethical persuaders try to tap into that and, and legitimately by talking maybe about testimonials or, or Amazon ratings, just things like that that are telling somebody, hey, here's what other people like you, mm-hmm. what they're doing, how they feel about this product or service. Yeah. Okay. And then the next principle that we spend time on is principle of consistency, which simply describes the reality that Most people want to be consistent in what they say and what they do, because when we put our word out there and we follow through, we feel good about ourselves. And we also look good to other people. When we say we'll do something and we don't, we tend to feel bad about ourselves. And we also know we look bad to the people that we promised to. So it's, it's a very, very powerful driver of behavior. So if we can get people to commit by not telling them what to do, but asking, and then they say yes they are far more likely to actually do what we would like them to do. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think, you know, you see that a lot in um, in some of the sales techniques and other things like that is it's like slowly bringing people along. You know, if, if, you, if you watch somebody who, who does sales a lot, you know, there'll be things where they'll ask a question to get you to say yes, right? Mm -hmm. Because I've always heard, you know, if you can get somebody to say yes, I think the magic number was somewhere around seven to 10 times before you actually ask for whatever it is that you're really wanting to ask for. That consistency along the way, they get used to actually saying yes, so Mm -hmm. that when you actually ask, they do say yes, right?
1: Dale Carnegie pointed out in his book, how to win friends and influence people where he said, get them to say yes uh, immediately because he saw the same thing as he um, observed highly successful back in his day. The more somebody said yes, the easier the next yes became.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right.
1: And the sixth principle that we typically talk about is called the principle of scarcity. And I'm sure people are well aware of this too that we tend to value things. We want things more when we believe they're rare or going away. And so we see it all the time with uh, sale end Sunday, while supplies are last, or while supplies last, things like that, where it triggers in us like, uh-oh, if I don't take action now, I might not get this opportunity. And, and I like to talk about FOMO, fear mm-hmm. of missing out. Fear that, missing out. That drives an awful lot of human behavior. If we can honestly talk about what someone will lose by not going with what we propose, quite often that will be the difference maker for them to ultimately say yes. Um, As a very personal example, if somebody were talking to me about sales training, there's lots of people who do sales training, but there's only 20 people in the world certified by Cialdini, and of the ones that I know, I've got more background and experience in sales than any of them, so I can legitimately tell a prospective customer, you can't get what I do anywhere else. You can get sales training, but you can't get what I do, that, that tie-in of the psychology of persuasion and, and into the sales process in a whole different way of looking at things. And, and quite often, that's the difference maker for them to say, okay, let's, let's go with you.
0: Yeah, well, and I think this is, a, this is an actually very interesting um, point, too, because, you know, we, we talked about persuasion as helping people to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. And so in order to change their behavior, it means they actually have to take some sort of action. And, and so, you know, I think, I think sometimes, you know, people look at scarcity of, you know, it's like the late night infomercial, you know, only 49 left and buy now and we'll throw in an extra Ginza knife and whatever else, but must do it in the next 20 minutes, you know? And so people kind of see that or think of, I think to me, like that scarcity part of it is, is almost being like an icky part. But actually, scarcity is, and again, this goes back to the science, right? It's important for us as humans to see the scarcity, to understand what we could lose out on mm-hmm. if we don't take action, to help us take an action that we should be taking already.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. People, people tend to regret what they didn't do more than what they do. And by you know missing those opportunities, it's just like, uh, you know, I, I hate myself for not buying Apple. You know, $50 a share, <laughs> something like that. And uh, I should have listened to that guy or that lady who was telling me, buy Apple. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. But I want people to really recognize if we're doing this right along the way, if we truly are trying to come to like the people that we're working with and serving. And we're truly trying to help them by giving and engaging reciprocity. And we're honestly talking about whether it's our personal authority or bringing in authority from other areas and how other customers have felt. We're we're just being truthful along the way with something that we've already established is either a want or a need for them. And then when it gets to scarcity, well, you know, if you would buy because there was only a few left, but if you think there are hundreds, you're not going to buy right away, you'd be kicking yourself you'd be ticked off at me if I didn't tell you, gosh, I'm sorry, Jason, but we, we sold the last one. You're like, why didn't you tell me it was the last yeah, one?
0: I know. So well, And and it's funny too, because I know like we took, when we, t- when we talked last time, you know, there was a whole idea. I think, I think you used the example of the f- uh, financial analyst, right? Saying, Hey, if, if, if you can find a way to save $5 more each month, you know, you're going to have a hundred thousand dollars more at retirement. Right. Which sounds like a good thing. So a lot of times we kind of focus on the positive or the good thing that people are going to have, but the more effective is if you can't find a way to save $5, Mm -hmm. you're going to lose out on an extra $100,000 in your, in your retirement. Yeah. And because it's, it's the fear of loss that drives us more than, you know, the, the, the potential for gain.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's a science, it's a psychology, and so again, it's like um, we shouldn't be afraid to actually share that with people because it does actually help them to take that action, which is the whole idea that we're trying to get to anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, and here's an example a lot of people could relate to. Let's say I'm talking to somebody named Bob, and Bob's 50 pounds overweight, and I could say, Bob, you know, you're overweight, that's not good for you. Imagine how good you'd feel if you lost that 50 pounds, and it, yeah, okay, that that's more motivating than not talking about it. But if I also say, Bob, you know, you're 50 pounds overweight. I was reading a study that says people who are that overweight cut 10 years off of their lifespan. You don't want to leave your family 10 years sooner than you have to, right? He's going to be more motivated to take some action thinking if i my habits, I'm going to die younger than I yeah. need. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you're still, you're still trying. I mean, the goal is to try to, you know, because again, if Bob is your friend, you do yeah. care about him. You don't want him to die 10 years early. You do want him to feel better, right? So you want both of those things, but if you know that encouraging that him to actually take action is going to be more effective if you say, look, Bob, I, I don't want you to die 10 years younger. That's right. You know, I, don't, I don't want you to miss, miss your family and you know seeing your kids get married or whatever. That's still having a real honest conversation with him, but it's, it, if it's still coming from a place of caring, it's not like you're trying to scare the hell out of him, right? right. But it's like, Bob, I care about you, and I, and I don't want you to have these health issues. I don't want you to die early, so let's, mm-hmm. let's get on it. Let's go running together, man. You know,
1: whatever. And If Bob loses that, he's not going to come back at some point and go, darn you for scaring me and losing up. <laughs> what am I going to do with these next 10 years? <coughs> I know. I'm going to be there
0: to see my grandkids. How dare okay. you, Brian, actually right. you know, encourage yep. me to have a healthy lifestyle and, and yep. try to help kick me in the butt to get me there. Yeah. Exactly. Because and I think that's what we have to what we have to think about in the back of our mind is anytime that we're trying to influence somebody, it should be coming from a good place. Absolutely. If, if we're doing it the the ethical way. And so again, but just try to do it the most effective way that you can. Mm-hmm.
1: So, yep.
0: yep. Yep. Okay. So good overview of kind of those six principles. Now the new one that I saw that you added was unity. Mm -hmm. And so at first when I saw that, I thought, okay, that's a little bit different, but maybe explain, explain about that. Because then after I started thinking about it, it's like, totally makes sense. And good thing that needs to be talked
1: about. So, so unity was introduced in uh, Robert Cialdini's book, *Persuasion*. So he introduced a seventh principle and people asked like, well, I thought there was only six principles, you know, all these years of study and you only had six. And, and his standard response is it was there all along, but it was kind of underneath the surface. And I just didn't notice (laughs) Um, some people have described units, the principle of liking on steroids, but it's more than that. So the principle we, we talk about, uh, it's easier for people to say yes to those who are of us. So when we share some kind of identity, it's not just the fact that we have something in common, but there's some shared identity and some good examples would be, well, the best example I can think of is my dad. My dad served in the United States Marine Corps during Vietnam. Um, when my dad meets another Marine, particularly one who's been in combat, I would swear Jason that he feels closer to that person than me, his own flesh and blood, because they have experienced something very few people can understand. And there becomes a natural bond. It's, they can look at each other and just know how they're feeling about certain things. Now, uh, certainly family is, is a, a unity maker. When, if you learned that you had a brother that you never knew about, it didn't matter that you didn't meet him. You'd feel things towards that person you wouldn't towards other people. And if there was help needed, we will go out of our way and do things for family that we wouldn't do for anybody else. So that's, that's the the deepest tie, but, but things like uh, having been in, the, in the, the military, having been part of marching bands or having played sports on, on teams creates this sense of unity. It's kind of a, we, and Against the world mentality. And so I like to put it this way that we Is me and me is we that, that we really are there's almost a blending of who we are With that group that we feel unitized with does that make and, sense?
0: Yeah, and so it's almost like a sense of community, you know as well too, yes. to to where you're actually You are connecting at a deeper level, you know, it's it, it's not like well. Yeah, we both like to run. That's great right? Versus if we had actually, you know, like like that group of guys that you were talking about to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you ran a marathon together, you trained in the marathon together Mm -hmm. that creates more of a sense of unity between you guys as that group than just you meeting somebody else that you like to, that likes to run also.
1: Yeah. I think a great example, some of your listeners probably uh, do Mm CrossFit. CrossFit in my eyes, um, took what people were, were doing like in the gym, where I'd go to the gym and maybe I see you and you see me and we have that in common and we're friends, but CrossFit and you and other people and throws us into things that we are doing together. Yeah. And so to me, CrossFit has, is unbelievable because it's built community because everybody is not just like seeing each other, but they are working together, encouraging together. You get done with that workout, and I know how you felt because I did it. You know how I feel. And, mm-hmm. and we can always go back to that one workout. Like I used to do Taekwondo with my daughter when Mr. Pidio had us do 500 kicks that day. Oh, oh man. It was, it was on Cinco de Mayo. He called it Kiko de Mayo. Kiko we are de Mayo. forget. <laughs> if it, a
0: cinco is only five. Why did he add two zeros behind yeah. it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> But but that painful bonding experience created a unity. And and really I think that's what CrossFit does. That's what the military does. That's what sports teams, two-a-days and things, they they create this this unity that goes much deeper than you have in common.
0: Yeah. Well, and I thought too again, as I as I was, you know, thinking about that too, I think it ties into some of the stuff we talked about to begin with as well, right? Is is if if we're trying to persuade somebody if we're trying to influence somebody if we're trying to like someone else obviously the deeper the relationship we can have the better yes the more authentically we can actually be there and be real with the person
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know it's, it's like you know we talked about bob the 50 pound overweight friend right mm-hmm. uh, you know my name's jason but anyway <laughs> but um if bob wasn't your friend you would probably approach him in a different manner than if he is your friend as well, because Mm -hmm. you have that sense of community and unity with him. And I think it also, to me, ties back to some of that lasting and ethical stuff that we talked about before too, is that, you know, as we're trying to, you know, develop our people, if you will, in our community, those people that we have unity with, we're going to want to make decisions and do things that are lasting and ethical because we're trying to grow and deepen our relationships with other people,
1: yeah.
2: And
0: so, and to me, it like totally fits in now. You know, now that I've seen it and thought about it a little bit,
1: yeah. And you, you may not have unity with everybody that you come in contact with. You may be able to build it over the course of time by sharing experiences and and things like that. But if if it's not there, then just tap deeply into liking. Go mm-hmm. out of your way to to be a giver and tap into reciprocity, and eventually that may come. But I don't want people to think that when you go into a situation all of these principles are not always going to be naturally available and you don't want to become somebody who relies on one thing because you may be in the situation and that principle might not be there for you people may not care about your expertise you may be in a situation where they don't care about it the first and foremost they want to come to know and like you so don't don't become a one-hit wonder only on one principle because it's your go-to or you feel good with it. You've got to become very good at spotting what principles are natural to the situation and understanding them so well that you can bring them into your communication.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, and that's one of the things um, that I loved about kind of how you, how you did your new book. And so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that. And actually, um, you know, cause I was lucky. I get a little, I got a little, pr- Preview of it, uh, you know, because I think I think you said before I went. Right? Well, maybe just tell everybody that's coming out in August. I think, right? Yes, the end of yep. end of August.
1: Yep, pre sales uh, in early August. It should be available. We're shooting for August twentieth, and it'd be in e format and paperback.
0: Okay, and people can get that. I think at, at any of the wherever they like to go, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, those kind of places, they can get the ebook or print. I
1: think as yeah. well, right? Okay, be able to order online, and and then eventually I'll have an audio but okay down the road.
0: Yeah, yeah, it takes a little while to get the audio actually done. So, okay, but 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 with that, so again, yeah, I mean because I've gone through and taken a look at this and one of the things that I really love about what you did here was you took kind of, you know, these stories or case studies or examples and you kind of talked through it and then at the end of it you did how can you influence people? And you right. give like a paragraph that actually talks about practical, tactical, real things that you can do, yep. you know, because I I know, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the science or the theory or the other stuff, but at the end of the day, we got to actually use this. Yep. And so I really appreciated, you know, kind of how you did that. And so maybe we can kind of go through and, and talk about a couple, you know, in, in the book, actually, you mentioned your dad, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about that and about the Marines and, and that whole sense of, of unity in there. Um, and so, and so maybe let's just kind of talk about a few, cause one that really jumped out at me was Kodak. You have a, you have an example in there about Kodak. And, and the reason for me is I've used them kind of in a case in case studies and speeches and trainings that I've done before. Um, but kind of in a, in a, in a little bit of a different way. Right. And so maybe just kind ca- just kind of give us the, the, the backstory there of kind of, you know, what was going on at Kodak? Why did this make it in the book as kind of a little business case study? And then how how we can kind of learn from it and see where yeah. we're going go.
1: Well, I had a friend who, who actually brought it to my attention and said, I think this would be a great uh, article for you to look into about Kodak. And w- when I started to research it, I mean, everybody's familiar with Kodak. And and depending on the age of your listeners, they might be remember the Kodak moment, all those happy and fun times you wanted to yep. uh, memorialize on film and I think it was in the mid 70s they had 90 percent of the photography market when it came to um but they even though some people in the company saw how technology was going to change things or potentially um there was an inability to get the senior leaders to grasp that And so they kept doing what they've always done. And ultimately, I think it was 2011, they had to declare bankruptcy um, to um, reconfigure the the company. So you go from 90% of the market share to having to file for bankruptcy. And I believe a big part of that was people who understood what what was coming with technology didn't have the ability to persuade those above them that we need to take this serious and we need to make the changes. And they kept doing what they've always done, and and that's a natural human tendency, to always to keep doing what's what's already worked. Um, change is scary, but I really firmly believe if the people at Kodak, the ones who saw it coming, had understood better how they could persuade people, they might have gotten senior leaders' attention to be able to say, we need to start looking at this, and so maybe we need to start changing
0: what we're doing well because I, I you know I've, I've seen it. I looked at it kind of from a risk management perspective and the, the changes in strategy and other stuff because what's interesting is like you said for a time Kodak had 9, 90 plus percent of the photo you know business mm-hmm. and and what's interesting is you know Fuji which became major competitor to them started eating into that market share And, and Kodak was, I mean, very innovative company. In fact, I think if I remember right, I think Kodak was the one that first came out with the color printer. Um, but I know they did in, in, I think it was 75. They actually came out with the first digital camera, I think back in, in, I think it was 75. And, And so they actually pioneered the technology that actually ended up being one of the biggest things that put them out of business. Um, but, but the irony again was, you know, like you said, I've, I've read different stories about pitches that people made to, to senior leadership and, and they just, they just wouldn't listen, you know, and it's, and it's like you said, if, if someone or a group of people had been able to better influence and better communicate what they saw happening, then they wouldn't have had this big bankruptcy and, you know, effectively a math, you know, pretty much Kodak is done, right? Nobody, in 20 years, nobody's going to know what a Kodak moment is, except for all of us that are old. And by that point, we'll probably get senile anyway. we <laughs> <I> won't remember. <laughs> we
1: got, <laughs> shows the picture
0: and we'll go, who is that? Who Fuji? is that? Oh, yeah. but, uh, but, but I thought it's interesting because if you take Fuji on the other side, people there did get it. They were right. able to influence. And, and F- Fuji actually was the one then that came up with the first semiconductor digital camera. One in the 70s was actually film based still, but they knew that it was going to be a problem. but they started in the 80s actually you know influencing, communicating it, socializing it, and change their strategy so that you know at the same time that Kodak was um, filing for bankruptcy, they had totally redone their business and are now in product lines nobody would ever think of Fuji being into, but it was because those people at the company were able to influence and actually make, make the changes. They were actually able to change the behavior and, and have the company do things differently.
1: Yeah, because at, at some point, I mean, when you're highly successful, somebody had to come with the idea about this is what we think the future is going to be and we need to be ready for it now people might have been doing that at Kodak and, and senior leadership didn't say yes people at Fuji they made the pitch and people did say yes but I think the specifics of how they should have done that we would need to understand a lot more about their business I do think the bottom line is this that if people in an organization who really have their pulse on on the market are not able to convey that in a way that gets those above them to see what they see and see the risks that they see, and investigating change, then a company is going to be doomed, because nothing that we do right now, nothing you do, I do, or anybody else does, will stay the same for very long. It's mm-hmm. just just with the technology that we have. So we have to be ready to change, and we have to also be those people who can get the people above us ready to change.
0: Yeah. No, it is. And, and because, you know, again, I think that that's I, I wish I had more information because again, that that whole case study with Kodak and with Fuji has just always fascinated me. You know, mm-hmm. two companies and yet they had totally different outcomes.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but let's let's maybe talk about. I mean, just may, maybe another story or something from the book that 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 you find that's helpful and that that we can actually then kind of show people, explain the story, and then kind of do that practical. You know, how can you influence people from that? What's the lesson that they can learn, or the thing that they can actually take back and start doing?
1: Another one that really jumped out to me was JCPenney. When JCPenney got some new leadership, and I believe it was Ron Johnson who would come over from Apple, and they had some people from Target, they had a lot of really, really smart people come in, and they did away with the traditional sales. So JCPenney, I want to say it was 40% of their revenue came through sales. You know when they'd have big weekend events, things
2: mm-hmm. like
1: that. And you've probably heard people say this, and I have too. Why is that item nineteen ninety nine? I know it's twenty bucks. Why is that nine ninety nine or whatever the case may be? But there's plenty of studies that show you price something at nineteen ninety nine and it sells better if it's twenty dollars or twenty one dollars. Yep. Um, even though you might think I know this, people might say that stuff on infomercials it doesn't work. Yes, it yes, does, it does That's why they, they just, make millions of dollars doing it. That's they, why they do they it. They measure. They know what works. So, so they came in and they were doing away with sales and they wanted to go with, with what they would consider, you know, just uh, everyday low price kind of thing and no more funky numbers. It's going to be 15 and $20 and, and things like that. And as I read about the strategy, my gut said, this ain't going to work because people, first of all, there, there's plenty of studies that showed 1999, et cetera, that that works. It stimulates more purchases. But the other thing was what you're taking away from people. People love a sale, and I, I say in the book, it's as it's as all American as uh, mom apple pie. They,
0: they got a deal, man. We got ten percent off, and we'll put it on our credit card and pay twenty percent interest. But we got ten percent <laughs> off.
1: Yeah, we. I mean, we we all better when we get what we feel is a deal. And so I thought between those two things, this is going to be an abject failure, and I was right. I mean, when I circled back. Um, sometime later and looked, um, Ron Johnson admitted that the pricing strategy was a failure and he was gone months later. So sometimes what, just because it sounds good to you, it sounds good to me, that doesn't mean it sounds good to everybody. We need to step back and say, what does the science tell us about how people think and behave? And in that case, what they did was scarcity. They took something away and then people wanted it more how dare you take away the, the um, July 4th sales or the Labor Day sales or the Memorial Day sales? I love that. My family goes, we shop. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so they weren't thinking really about how ultimately long-term people would think and feel about it. They were looking at just the short term. We think that we will stimulate sales by going with round numbers and, and things like that. And it was a failure.
0: Well, I thought it's interesting because it's, it's actually, you know, as you bring that up, it, they almost removed scarcity by taking away the sales, right? Because the sa- a sale, you know, kind of is, again, it's a form of scarcity that's used. Hey, you want to save 10% on the 4th of July sale, mm-hmm. you got to come in between the 2nd and the 7th or whatever it is, right? So, so it's forcing people in on those particular days. And if you have everyday low prices, then there's not that scarcity component that f- drives people in on those yes. particular days.
1: Yeah, and, and the people who shopped at Pennies I mean, there's a customer who shops at Pennies, there's a customer who shops at Target. There's a customer that shops at Nordstrom. You can't go about things at Nordstrom the way they do it at Target. And you certainly can't price things and do things at Target the way they do at Nordstrom. You have to understand who your customer base is. You know, a change like that would have taken a long, long time. Maybe they could have done away with a sale, and then maybe the next year' done away with one more or something. But you're right. On the one hand, they took something away and people didn't like that. But then on the other hand, they hurt themselves because the sale was predicated on scarcity, short periods of time, and people were less likely to come into the store than they had been before. So it was it was really kind of a slap across the face both ways.
0: Well, and it's almost I mean if we if we kind of analogize the company to a person, right? To you know, again, if we think about, you know, we've we've gotten somebody to like us. There's that sense of you know unity cuz like you said i mean pennies was one of those places that we went for you know um when i was growing up we got clothes like twice a year right there was the back to school sales when i got clothes and then i got some for christmas that was it we didn't buy clothes like during the year all the time
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so it was it was like this tradition that you know everybody loads up in the car and everybody goes out and would would do the back to school sales you know yeah. and That fed off restaurants. August was usually typically one of the highest months in restaurants for the same reason. Everybody was out at the malls and the stores, then they have dinner, where normally they eat at home. But it's it's almost like over time, you know, they had developed this culture and community and unity of their people. Mm -hmm. People liked that, you know, they were kind of serving what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, it's like they do a 180. And, and, and it's like, you know, again, if, you know, we like each other, we have this unity and community. And then all of a sudden I show up one day and I'm like a totally different person. Mm-hmm. You're going to be like, everything all right, Jason? <laughs> you need to see a psychiatrist or something? I mean, what happened to the guy that I liked? Yeah. Right. And that's almost, it sounds like kind of what happened there. And a lot of the customers were probably like, this yeah. isn't the pennies that I love and grew up with
1: when organizations implement change, they're always touting how good it's going to be. Um, I, I mentioned in that, in that same, Coke, when Coke came out with new Coke and it was well tested, people said they liked the taste of the new Coke better. So when they took the old Coke away, they revolted. So it wasn't about what they were gonna get, it was about what they were gonna lose. Now in hindsight, they probably should have just in new Coke and said, now you've got options, you know? Yeah. and, and which is what but, um, they're doing now,
0: like with all the flavors and everything else that they're coming out with now.
1: Yeah, so, so they learned. But I think about the company that I used to work for and certain changes were rolled out that might have seemed good. And, oh, wow, we're going to make this change on. Uh, I think one of the examples was um, we had a certain number of days for vacation and we had a number of sick days. And management said, we're going to do away with the sick days. We'll just combine them in with the, with the <laughs> yeah. vacation days and you know for somebody like me who hardly ever took a sick day i looked at it and thought wow i potentially have six more days to take and do what i want with there was a lot of people who always took all six days and the way they restructured it you technically were going to lose a couple but anyway i'm looking at i got four more days and other people are looking at it like i'm losing two days anyway it was like revolt i mean and and the ceo um it was all well intended he he was thinking People now have a bucket of days they can use for anything. They can use it for vacation. They can use it for sick. If they don't get sick, they have more days to take for vacation. But people looked at it from what they were losing. And too many times, I'm not saying that the change ultimately wasn't probably the right thing, but organizations need to think about, if we implement this change, let's step back and say, how will people perceive? What will people think about what they're losing? And how are we going to deal with that? Because if you don't, um, people don't just buy into the rah-rah that management tells you how good it is. There's a little distrust. They're like, yeah, you're always going to tell us it's great until you switch strategies and tell us how bad it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, no, and it's funny that you bring up that one about sick time because uh, I can't remember which. It was in a social setting I was in it within the last two weeks, and somebody was complaining about the company taking away their sick time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know that, that that I don't know, and 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 now they have you know a lot of people call it PTO, you know, whatever time off, you know, yeah. kind of thing, and um, and and so again it's this lump, but they're like, well, I don't have sick days, so I can't be sick, and so you've taken away my sick days, and now you're making me take a vacation day for being sick, yeah, you know, yep.
1: so that's the unintended consequence where somebody thinking, I want to use all 20 of those days to go on vacation. I'm going to just go into work sick. I'm not giving up that day and they get everybody else sick. Now, here's another interesting thing. The company transitioned from that to no PTO, meaning you take the time you need. Now on the surface, again, that might sound good. Like, well, I can take any and as much time. Long time associates were revolting. They're like, wait a minute, I worked here 20 years before I got 25 days me, Somebody who's been here for two years, if they want to, they can take 25 days. So there was, they felt like they were losing something. Yeah. Um, the other thing that some studies show is people will ultimately take less time off. So in the end, I mean, believe me, any company, if they institute that and look and go, holy cow, people take off 20% more time than they ever used to. I guarantee you that company will go back to something different because they're not doing it to intend for people to take more time. People will ultimately take less time under a lot of those no PTO scenarios.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that's what, Any anytime that I hear a company doing that, I, I I'm hoping that they're coming from the right place of just take the time you need. But I, in the back of my mind, my accounting, background says, no, they're trying to reduce their liabilities, and it's an accounting <laughs> scheme, which hopefully then is, hope again, like you said, trying to encourage people to actually take less time than what we've been
1: given them before. So here's another thing to consider, though. If you or I start a company, and right off the bat, we say, you know, there's no PTO, we kind of lay that out. Anybody who comes to work for us, they know that they're making a choice to come work there. Entirely different to change the culture and institute something like that. And that's that's even more important to understand influence and how will people perceive this and what will be the most effective, ethical way for us to talk about this to get people on board. The people who came into the company loved it because they're going to work there and and, and that was a factor to choose to work there. But yeah. the bulk of the people had been there for a long time.
0: Well, and I think what, again, it shows is, you know, like we talked about the whole scarcity side of it and how, again, I mean, this is like real life, everyday example of people being much more afraid or getting much more upset about losing something than about what they're gaining. Yes. And so, like you said, I mean, because I I was the same way. I liked PTO because I never got sick. I mean, I was was a stupid kid that, you know, I had 100% attendance for like almost the whole grade school. And when I did get sick, it was on Christmas break for some reason. Right. So I still was, I was at school every single day. Right. Yeah. So for me, somebody that never takes sick days and would always feel guilty about, well, I'm not really sick. Mm -hmm. I like the PTO side better. But again, most people view that as you're taking something away from me and it, it gets them to change their behavior or actually talk about it and act about it. And so the same thing, if we want to, Influence people in the right way. We need to be talking about what they stand to lose More than what they're going to gain. Yep, because unfortunately that's what really gets people motivated to make change
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so Yep, so there's there's just uh, some Opportunity to to rethink how you're how you're doing things, but most people don't understand the language of influence They're not necessarily thinking about you know what is the intended impact or, or the unintended impact on people? And so they're just going to do what they've always done. And let's let's just tout all these great reasons. And and truthfully, the more great reasons you get for doing something, the more people distrust it because they're yeah. like, you're overselling. <laughs> you're overselling. Tell me the
0: bad. Tell me the bad, right?
1: Where's the crack in the basement on this idea, <laughs> senior leaders?
0: Oh, man, I like how you just like totally tied that around. Look at that. <laughs> well, it is because all of this actually – Really does fit together, right? And you have to have all yep. of these things. And like, like you said before, you know, we can get really good at certain ones, but we need to be basically proficient in all of them.
2: Absolutely.
0: because because you have to have all of them together to really um, be able to influence people. So, yep. All right. Well, I'm looking at the time. We probably better wrap up. But um, uh, you know, Brian, I really appreciate you talking more about this because, again, I. I see this as being one of the biggest things that people have to learn
2: mm-hmm.
0: both in their business right. life and in their, in their personal life. And a lot of people aren't talking about it. And so I, am really grateful to, to know you as an expert. Um, cause I know, you know, how people can find you. I know you've got a website, I think mm-hmm. in, influencepeople.com <laughs> or <laughs> dot .biz. Uh, biz. Yep. Influencepeople.biz. Um, you can get a hold of Brian, but I know too you're active on LinkedIn, um, and and because I remember, you know the way we got connected. I heard you on a different podcast, and I remember you saying, "Hey, connect with me on LinkedIn, but send me a personalized invite, mm-hmm. and I'll respond and connect." And so I'm like, "Okay, Brian, I just heard you on," and you're like, "Boom!" Right? Um, so you can also reach out to Brian on LinkedIn yep. as well, right? Um, Absolutely. Easy, easy to find his, his nice, handsome face will pop up and you'll see all the stuff there um, about it. But yeah. um excited for people for your new book coming out again. It's influence people. And what's the subtitle again? It's the, it's the acronym.
1: Wow. Powerful everyday opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical.
0: Right. And again, so we've gone through and talked about those because ultimately, again, if you're going to influence, it needs to be for the long game. It yep. needs to be done in an ethical way. And, um, like I said, I'm really excited for people to get this book in their hands because I think it does give people some practical things that they can actually take. Like I said, I love that. How can you influence people at the end of each of those sections or stories that, that really puts the rubber on the road and something that you can actually um, do or use in in your daily life?
1: Great. Well, I would, I, you know, thank you for having me on. And I would also say this to any listener who's ever read any of Robert Cialdini's work. Um, Pick up my book because if you struggled at all with like, well, this is really cool and I find it fascinating, but how do I do it? That's what my book is all about is how do you take those principles and and put them into practical application?
0: Yeah, because Bob's a scientist. So he's like recording on it, you know, reporting on it from a scientific standpoint. Right. But yeah, what you're doing is really putting it more practical that that normal people can actually start incorporating in their in their daily lives, which I think is great. Yep. So thank you again for coming on because again, that's why I wanted you back, because you know your stuff, man. And um thank you. Really appreciate that we've gotten to to know each other and and uh, be able to have discussions like this. So all right. So you can reach Brian at influencepeople.biz uh through LinkedIn and also make sure to grab his book when it comes out here um pre-sales early August. And available in uh, ebook and uh, paper copy through any of the places like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, yep. other places like that towards the end of August. So yep.
2: all right. Thanks. Jason.
0: Hey, thanks, Brian. We'll talk to you later, man. All right. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. Have a great rest of your day and I'll catch you later on the next show. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to Risk Academy at ondemand.criskacademy.com. And that's C as in the letter C, riskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you also will have access to the video version of today's show. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective
2: organizations.